Hello and welcome to another episode of Covenant and Conversation with me, Rabbi Sachs. In each new episode, we'll explore a Jewish idea from the Hebrew Bible based on the Torah reading of the week. Toldot, the courage of persistence. There's a strange passage in the life of Yitzchak, ominous in its foreshadowing of much of later Jewish history. Like Avraham, Yitzchak finds himself forced by famine to go to Gerar in the land of the Philistines. There, like Avraham, he senses that his life may be in danger because he's married to a beautiful woman. He fears that he'll be killed so that Rivka can be taken into the harem of King Avimelech. The couple pass themselves off as brother and sister. The deception is discovered. Avimelech is indignant. Explanations are made, and the moment passes. Bereshit 26 reads like almost a replay of Bereshit 20 a generation later. In both cases, Avimelech promises the patriarch's security. To Avraham, he said, my land is before you, live where, wherever you like. About Yitzchak, he commands anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Yet in both cases, there's a troubled aftermath. In Bereshis 21, we read about an argument that arose over a well that Avraham had dug. Then Avraham complained to Avimelech about a well of water that Avimelech's servants had seized. The two men make a treaty. Yet, as we now discover, this was not sufficient to prevent further difficulties in the days of Yitzchak. We read in chapter 26 of how Yitzchak planted crops, reaped a hundredfold, the Lord blessed him, he became rich, his wealth continued to grow, and he had so many flocks and herds that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Avraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Avimelech then said to Isaac, move away from us, you have become too powerful for us. And there Isaac reopened, he went to the valley of Gerar, he opened the wells that had been dug in the time of Abraham, and uh, they discovered a well of fresh water, but the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Yitzchak's herdsmen and said, the water is ours, etc., etc. So they tried again and again, and eventually he dug another well, and this time there was no quarrel, and he called it Rechovot, saying, now the Lord has given us room and will flourish in the land. Now, there are three aspects of this passage worthy of careful attention. The first is the intimation it gives us of what will later be the turning point of the fate of the Israelites in in Egypt. Avimelech says, you have become too powerful for us. Centuries later, Pharaoh says at the beginning of the book of Shemot, behold, the people of the children of Israel are greater in number and power than we are. Come, let's deal wisely with them, etc., etc., So the same word, atzum, power or powerful, appears in both cases. Our passage signals the birth of one of the deadliest of human phenomena, anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is in some respects unique. It is in Robert Wistrich's phrase, the world's 
longest hatred. No other prejudice has lasted so long, mutated so persistently, attracted such demonic myths, or had such devastating effects. But in other respects, it's not unique, and we have to try and understand it as best we can. Actually, one of the best books about anti-Semitism is in fact not about anti-Semitism at all, but about similar phenomena in other contexts, namely Amy Chua's book, World on Fire. Her thesis is that any conspicuously successful minority will attract envy that may deepen into hate and provoke violence. All three conditions are essential. The hated group must be conspicuous, because otherwise it wouldn't be singled out. It has to be successful, because otherwise it wouldn't be envied. And it has to be a minority, because otherwise it wouldn't be attacked. All three conditions were present in the case of Isaac. He was conspicuous. He wasn't a Philistine. He was successful. His crops had succeeded a hundredfold, and his flocks and herds were large. And he was a minority, a single family in the midst of the local population. All the ingredients were present for the distillation of hostility and hate. There is more. Another profound insight into the conditions that give rise to anti-Semitism was given by Hannah Arendt in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. She said this, Hostility to Jews becomes dangerous not when Jews are strong, but when they're weak. Now, this is deeply paradoxical because on the face of it, the opposite is true. A single thread runs from the Philistines' reaction to Yitzchak and Pharaoh's to the Israelites to the myth concocted in the late 19th century known as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It says that Jews are powerful, too powerful. They control resources. They're a threat. They must be removed. Yet, says Arendt, anti-Semitism didn't become dangerous until they had lost the power they once had. This is what she says. When Hitler came to power, the German banks were already almost Judenrein, almost completely free of Jews. And it was here that Jews had held key positions for more than 100 years. And German Jewry as a whole, after a long, steady growth in social status and numbers, was declining so rapidly that statisticians predicted its disappearance in a few decades. The same was true in France. Hannah Arendt notes that the Dreyfus affair exploded not under the Second Empire when French Jewry was at the height of its prosperity and influence, but under the Third Republic, when Jews had all but vanished from important positions. Anti-Semitism is a complex protean phenomenon because anti-Semites must be able to hold together two beliefs that seem to contradict one another. Namely, number one, that Jews are so powerful that they should be feared. And number two, that Jews are so powerless that they can be attacked without fear. It would seem that no one could be so irrational as to believe both of those things simultaneously. But emotions are not rational, despite the fact that they are often rationalized. Because there's a world of difference between rationality and rationalization, which means the attempt to give 
rational justification for irrational beliefs. So, for example, in the 21st century, we can find that A, Western media are almost universally hostile to Israel, and B, otherwise intelligent people claim that the media are controlled by Jews who support Israel. And that is the exact same contradiction of perceived powerlessness and ascribed power. Arendt summarizes her thesis in a single telling phrase which links her analysis to that of Amy Chua. What gives rise to anti-Semitism is, she says, the phenomenon of wealth without power. That was the position of Isaac among the Philistines. There's a second aspect of our passage that has had reverberations through the centuries, namely the self-destructive nature of hate. The Philistines didn't ask Isaac to share his water with them. They didn't ask him to teach them how he and his father had discovered a source of water that they, the residents of the place, had not. They didn't even simply ask him to move on. They stopped up the wells, filling them with earth. That act harmed them more than it harmed Isaac. It robbed them of a resource that would, in any case, have become theirs once the famine had ended and Yitzchak had returned home. More than hate destroys the hated, it destroys the hater. In this case, too, Yitzchak and the Philistines were a portent of what would eventually happen to the Israelites in Egypt. By the time of the plague of locusts, we read, listen, Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that may, they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? In effect, they said to Pharaoh, You may think you are harming the Israelites. In fact, you are harming us. Both love and hate said Rabbi Shimon Bayochai, upset the natural order. They are mekalkelet etashura. They are irrational. They make us do things we wouldn't do otherwise. In today's Middle East, as so often before, those intent on destroying their enemies end by doing great harm to their own interests and their own people. Third, Yitzchak's response remains the correct one today. Defeated once, he tries again. He digs another well, this two yields opposition, so he moves on and tries again and eventually finds peace. How fitting it is that the town that today carries the name that Yitzchak gave the site of this third well, Rochovot, is the home of the Weizmann Institute of Science, the Faculty of Agriculture of the Hebrew University, and the Kaplan Hospital allied to the medical school of the Hebrew University. Israel Belkind, one of the founders of the settlement in 1890, called it Rechovot precisely because of the verse in our parasha. He named it Rechovot, saying, Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. Yitzchak is the least original of the three patriarchs. 
His life lacks the drama of Abraham or the struggles of Jacob. We see in this passage that Yitzchak himself didn't strive to be original. The text is unusually emphatic on this point. Yitzchak reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Avraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Avraham had died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Normally, we strive to individuate ourselves by differentiating ourselves from our parents. We do things differently, or even if we don't, we give them different names. Yitzchak wasn't like this. He was content to be a link in the chain of the generations faithful to what his father had started. Yitzchak represents the faith of persistence, the courage of continuity. He was the first Jewish child, and he represents the single greatest challenge of being a Jewish child. To continue the journey our ancestors began, rather than drifting from it, thereby bringing the journey to an end before it's reached its destination. And Yitzchak, because of that faith, was able to achieve the most elusive of goals, namely peace, because he never gave up. When one effort failed, he began again. So it is with all great achievement. One part originality, nine parts persistence. I find it moving that Yitzchak, who underwent so many trials from the binding when he was young to the rivalry between his sons when he was old and blind, carries a name that means he will laugh. Perhaps the name given to him by God himself before Yitzchak was born means what the psalm means when it says, Hazorim bedima berina yikzoru, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Faith means the courage to persist through all the setbacks, all the grief, never giving up, never accepting defeat. For at the end, despite all the opposition, the envy and the hate, lie the broad spaces, Rechovot, and the laughter, Yitzchak, the serenity of the destination after the storms along the way. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening. You can download a written version of my commentary and explore all my additional content by visiting www rabbisax.org This year, we also have an accompanying family edition of Covenant and Conversation aimed at connecting children and teenagers with these ideas and thoughts. For a family edition discussion sheet on this week's parasha, please go to www.rabbisax.org slash cc family edition.